Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. 11 months, 1,033 goals, 17 orders for football sound effects, volumes 1, 2 and 3, 4 Watford gaffers, 3 letters that continue to sound the sport, 1 Hawkeye apology, 1 goal from Jesse Lingard, 1 a correct Totally Football Show prediction and no final day bands blubbing on the terraces. It is all over. Today we round up the final verdicts from the fields of the Premier League. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Bauer. July the 27th, 2020, 11 months on, the season is done. Well done, listener. You made it. And your prize is this very special last day review in the company of Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. We've got Michael Cox in. Hi, Michael. Hi, James. And also with us, Duncan Alexander. Woof. Hello, James. Hello to you. Matt Davis-Adams will be joining us very, very shortly as we, yeah, collect ourselves after the, the final whistle, which is literally just blown, listener. We're all a bit dazed among the debris of this super extended Premier League season. How do you feel? Do you feel a kind of warm satisfaction or, or a little bit deflated? What's your reaction right now, Daniel? How's your, how are your emotions? Well, it's been very weird in that because of, for shielding reasons, I've not been to a game since Leicester beat Villa in March, which felt a very different Premier League season certainly for Leicester and for Aston Villa. And it's kind of only hitting me that as of six weeks, we've probably got getting on for two years of constant football, which is both brilliant and slightly daunting. Mm. Well, today, 10 matches simultaneously. As Brandon Williams said when he inherited Luke Shaw's jersey, there's a lot to take in. So let's kick off with a quick look at how it all unfolded. Sixteen hundred hours on the twenty-sixth of July, ninety minutes to play. Chelsea, Man United set for top four. Watford and the Cherries set for the drop. First real news comes at the Emirates, and it's not good for Watford. Aubameyang scoring from the spot. Kieran Tierney soon adds another. Then Aubameyang makes it three, and for the Hornets, that surely torn it. Bournemouth, meanwhile, have taken the lead at Goodison, but they then concede to Moise Keane, who, checks notes, has been at Everton this whole time. At Stamford Bridge, meanwhile, Chelsea come alive before the break. Two goals in three minutes, and now one of Man United and Leicester looks certain to miss out on the Champions League. At Arsenal, Watford now get a penalty. Mike Dean and David Luiz together in this match. What took them so long? Troy Deeney makes it 3-1. Second half and Watford make it 3-2, while Bournemouth retake the lead at Everton and then extend it. It's brave stuff from both sides, but if Aston Villa can hang on at West Ham, it will mean nothing. The minutes tick by. Morgan fouls Martial, and Man United have a penalty at the King Power. 1-0 now over Leicester, but still, it's goalless in East London. Then, in the 83rd minute, this. Grealish. Shot! Oh, he scored! Jack Grealish! Jack Grealish cut him and he bleeds claret, as most people do, to be fair. The goal there that would keep them up, except that West Ham score immediately from kickoff and Villa are back to sweating. But that's it, there will be no more scoring there or in the other games, except for one late, late goal, and what a way to finish the season. In the 98th minute of the final day, Jesse Lingard. Oh, an extraordinary season. 
Oh, and it's going to have an extraordinary ending. Genesee Lingard hasn't scored in the Premier League for a long, long time. And Kasper Schmeichel gives him a gift with virtually the last kick of Manchester United's campaign. Bournemouth and Watford down, Chelsea Man United get Champions League, Leicester Spurs and Wolves are into the Europa League unless Arsenal win the FA Cup, in which case they'll take Wolves' spot. Loads of other things happen, but first of all, it was it kind of all ended up the way that it started, but there were some twists along the way in the top four race. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it wasn't the most exciting of of final days, I think. Um, you know, no team has climbed into the top four on the last day since Arsenal did via a lasagna in 2006. Um, but these, everyone's having home cooked food now, so it's a lot safer, safe environment for football. Um, so, and I think, you know, um, you know, most people would have predicted Bournemouth and Watford to go down and, and that's how it happened. Although, you know, it did look for a while as if Bournemouth were, you know, going to pull off something pretty incredible. We'll talk about the relegation scrap in, in a bit. But, Michael, you were looking a bit surprised when Duncan said it wasn't too exciting as, a, as final days go. Was your blood pumping? Yeah, I thought it was all right. I mean, a lot of people seem to be watching the relegation stuff. I was watching Leicester Manchester United just because that was a game where obviously the two sides were going for the same thing. So I thought that was the most exciting game on paper. And that was quite tense, I think. And then just in the final 20 minutes when United had had pretty much put themselves into the Champions League, then there was this kind of couple of goals going in in the, the Villa West Ham game. So I don't know, I thought it was all right. I think they've been... Uh, damper squibs in the Premier League final days years I think what it is is it's been so long we saw this with the championship in midweek it's been so long since there's been lots of simultaneous games that I think you know people are getting a bit giddy you know you look back at this in five years and it it will just be a fairly routine end of season overall but I was watching as I suspect most people did a flipped over to to uh, West Ham Villa for the final few minutes and I was kind of expecting a final goal it's almost as if we've become so attuned to this footballer's soap opera or as as it is now Netflix series that there has to be this bitter final twist to turn everything on its head and actually it didn't happen Villa just saw out the game fairly comfortably for that last five minutes and and also didn't really celebrate on the final whistle although they were basically had confirmed safety because Bournemouth had finished they didn't really seem to know it and it wasn't for a sort of four or five minutes until they finally dared to celebrate, almost as if they were scared of kind of jinxing themselves. But yeah, I think that I agree with Duncan in that sense and that it felt like it needed that final big payoff line, which because the Champions League was fairly comfortable and because the title had been done a long time ago, there wasn't really that final punchline. The twist was there was no twist. Let's draw some conclusions then, starting off with events at King Power. Michael, can we have a word for Jesse Lingard here? He finally gets the, the goal he needed to break his drought and then the season goes and ends. Yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, he, yeah, obviously an open goal really having dispossessed Schmeichel. Um, yeah, I'm quite happy for him. I think he gets a lot of undue stick in terms of the kind of character he is and I feel a bit sorry for him because he's had some personal issues as he's documented quite openly um, I'm not sure he'll be at Manchester United next season so um, it's nice that someone who came up through the academy can sign off with a goal that I guess in a way kind of confirmed their Champions League participation so yeah good luck to him but obviously the the game was probably over by the time that happened. What do you think was the biggest story here? Man United after all the uh, mockery ending up in third place, or Leicester, after spending so much of the season in the top four, missing out? 
Well, a bit of both, really. I mean, in terms of this individual game, I thought it was quite an interesting match. Personally, I think Manchester United got quite lucky here. I thought um, after a nervous opening, Leicester really, I thought, were the stronger side for the majority of it. Weren't creating clear-cut chances, but both Lindelof and Maguire were on a yellow card, looking a little bit nervous. Matic was getting bypassed in the middle. I think from Leicester's perspective, there'd be two frustrations if I was a Leicester fan. One, Rogers said before the game that his plan was almost to get to that drink break midway through the second half. And if they needed to then really push forward, then they would. They can see the goal just before that drink break. So if that was their game plan, they, they really missed out by uh, a couple of minutes. The second would be that I thought Rogers could have been a little bit more adventurous with his substitution uh, when he brought Ayozi Perez on. I thought Iannaccio had been probably the game's best player. And while Rogers has got a tendency to uh, take him off after about an hour I thought really they could have left him on and, and played Perez behind the other two uh, centre forwards as they have done a couple of times since the restart so yeah a slightly frustrating game from Leicester's point of view and from Manchester United's perspective I thought they looked pretty leggy really tired I thought in in the attacking positions particularly Fernandes and Rashford and for all the fuss people were making about how Solskjaer kept on naming an unchanged side as if he'd kind of finally found the, the winning combination. I think that's really made them suffer in the past couple of games, as, to be fair, I think Daniel mentioned at the time when uh, Solskjaer was naming that unchanged side. On the subject of the Iheanacho, there was a real what-if moment back in the first half when Leicester were breaking. He was there with Vardy and another player on the other side of him, and it, it looked like a simple square ball to Vardy would have seen Leicester take the lead, but instead he, he took it on himself and it all kind of went wrong. What might have been? That's been kind of Iheanacho's thing, I think, in that he, he's clearly lacking confidence in front of goal. And in fairness, the chance opened up for him. And if it was Jamie Vardy, I'm sure he wouldn't have passed and he would have shot, but it was a kind of dribbled finish. I agree with Michael, though. He was brilliant in the first half, kind of dropping deep and picking up the ball. And he was making Matic look even more tired than I suspect he was. He looked so leggy in that first half that I'm really surprised he didn't do either as Michael said or just leave Iheanacho where he was and kind of pay Perez in a free roll just to go from wing to wing and try and pin back a fullback because yeah it kind of felt like he gave the initiative of the game away albeit they were undone by another two defensive errors you know self-inflicted errors exactly as they were at Bournemouth. Uh, worth pointing out that Iheanacho was involved in a kind of similar what-if moment uh, back end of last season wasn't he when he missed that chance against Manchester City had he scored you think the title probably would have gone Liverpool's way. So I think kind of decision-making and finishing is is the thing that uh, he needs to work on. But yeah, I thought he was the game's best player for an hour. There was also that debate, wasn't there, in 2017 when Iheanacho and Rashford both sort of broke through and there were camps defending one and and attacking the other. And I think it's fair to say Rashford has, has pushed on better, which went against some of the, the underlying numbers at the time. No goal for Jamie Vardy, meanwhile, in this game, but he does claim his first ever golden boot becoming the oldest winner ever of that uh, trophy at the age of 33. He finished uh, a goal ahead of both uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Danny Ings. We'll be talking about their exploits later on. Strider 4-4-4 pointing out that Leicester picked up the same number of points this calendar year as West Ham. Should questions are Strider 4-4-4 be asked of Rodgers? Probably. But then last time we asked those questions, the answer was they had loads of really, really key injuries. Anything else beyond that, Daniel? Well, just to say on Jamie Vardy, he's the oldest top scorer in the English top flight since the 1940s, which given that we kind of increasingly see the Premier League as a young man's game is 
pretty extraordinary effort for a team that didn't even finish in the top four and doesn't get, you know, he doesn't get the number of chances that, let's say, someone like Raheem Sterling has had to get to 20 goals. I mean, he, he retired from international football at the right time, I think. He's in a team uh, with a strong enough personality where he demands the ball and demands service. But, I mean, if James Madison had stayed fit all season and been in the form he was in the autumn, Vardy could have got 25 easily, which is mighty impressive for a, a 33-year-old. Well, he only joined the Premier League in his late 20s, his second oldest debutant to reach 100 goals. Um, and he also had the wherewithal to not go to Arsenal when he could have done. I think that would have slowed his goal scoring down quite a lot just because of the way they play and the way he would have possibly been rotated there. Um, one other thing from this game is United obviously set a new Premier League record for penalties in a single season. Um, it's one of those things that you kind of think a lot of people assume that Manchester United probably had this record anyway, but until the last couple of seasons, they didn't get as many penalties as a lot of the other uh, big clubs. But yeah, they've got 14 this season to go with 12 last season. Nice spot, Duncan. Yeah. All right. After this, the other half of that top four race. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, make sure you check out their coverage of each and every Premier League club by taking out a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash totally. Matt Davis-Adams joins us to talk Chelsea 2, Wolves, a big fat zero. Matt, you were working on this game, yes? I was, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't expecting it to be quite so comfortable, I must admit. Mm, never in doubt. Well, Frank Lampard helped by dropping Kepper again, I see. Yes. Um, I mean, theoretically, yes, that did help. But given that Wolves had one shot on target, uh, Chelsea would still have won the game anyway. All right. Let's talk about Mason Mount's shot on target. Yeah, really good. Uh, I think the club retweeted uh, a clip of Mason when he was either 8 or 12, taking a free kick in training and explaining to the camera how you take a free kick like Ronaldo. And it was very similar to the one that he scored today and and kind of sums up his season. You know, all these academy prospects that that Lampard's brought through, they've all had spells where where they've looked good, but but Mount has been pretty consistent throughout and definitely been the the pick of the bunch overall over the course of the season, I think. I like the fact that you said he was either 8 or 12, Matt. That was very specific. (laughs) Definitely not 9, 10 or 11, but 8 or 12. Yeah, yeah, quite. It's one of those two. Matt, how how much nervous is more? How much how much kind of nerves was there at, at Stamford Bridge ahead of this one? There was a little bit, but Chelsea always had the out of knowing that if Manchester United won, which seemed the more likely result, that they would get in anyway. But any nerves that they were quickly dissipated when when it became apparent how not disinterested, but lifeless Wolves were. It was an extraordinarily poor performance from them, given what was at stake for them too. I think Chelsea almost couldn't believe their luck once the once the game had started. But yeah, you know, there was nerves. Um, there, were, there was tension beforehand, but it was always in Chelsea's control. Um, you know, before the match, they knew what they needed. So I think that, that really helped. And also, they've been in great form at Stamford Bridge. They were in terrible form there at the start of the season. I think they only won two from the first 13. They've now won six in a row there. However, that's something to do with not having supporters there. I'm not sure. But but at home, all of a sudden, they look strong where they look really weak at the start of the season. Mm. Should mention it from a Wolves perspective that this game came a year and a day, I believe, after their season actually started uh, when they beat Crusader FC 2-0 back on the 25th of July in faraway 2019. Remarkable. They are, I read, the fourth different side to go through an entire Premier League campaign without any English goal scorers. 
the other ones being uh, Fulham twice, Arsenal and Stoke. I think it's probably worth giving Frank Lampard a bit of praise. I know he's had some some stick this week after he wasn't uh, or he didn't portray himself in in the best light at Liverpool. But bearing in mind he couldn't make any signings in the summer and he didn't have Eden Hazard. And to finish just a place below where Maurizio Sarri finished last season is uh, is pretty impressive. Matt, before we let you go, care to predict where Bournemouth are going to be next season? Will they, will they come straight back up again? <laughs> I don't want to crow too much about it because I've suffered my own immeasurable pain at the hand of my own football team's uh, catastrophic inability to um, to perform even the most basic tasks competently this week. So, yeah, sad for Bournemouth in a way, but um, as quite a, a kind of vain and selfish man, I'm also pretty pleased that I was proved right. And yeah, you all laughed at me. Well, who's laughing now? Indeed. All right then, Matt, you'll be back with a... With the Totally Football League show during the week, I imagine. Yeah, we're going to be doing that on Friday because uh, right. we've got a, a playoff semi going on as we speak and uh, both legs of the games will be will be finished by then. So we'll be releasing the show on Friday and I'm just about to do Straight out of Cobham as well. So if you're an Athletic subscriber, you, you can listen to that ad-free on the app as you can with the show and the Totally Football League show. All right. One of those playoff semi-finals, by the way, you can hear about at the end of this show because we'll have Nick Miller on to tell us all about that a little bit later on. Next up, we'll be waving bye-bye to Bournemouth and Watford. Nothing became their time in the Premier League as the manner of their leaving it. I thought I'd never see you again. I missed how you made me feel, the excitement you brought me, but I never stopped loving you. Did you just say something, mate? Oh, just looking at the Premier League fixtures like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder, so it's never been a better time to be a football fan. Celebrate with the Acker Cracker from Paddy Power. It covers all games on all markets, and if one leg folds, you get a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, minimum odds of 1-5 to five on for each leg. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Duncan, it was Sky Sports Golf for you uh, Sunday afternoon. For Everton Bournemouth. Can confirm that's the first time I've ever watched that channel. So Okay. Will you be going back? Probably not, no. Um there wasn't any golf on it. Uh, although Everton did look like they were wearing trousers for most of the first half, so um possibly. Nice tribute. No golf but a couple of clubs, one of which was certainly swinging or something. No, let's move on. Uh, but anyway, three one win for Bournemouth. Danny, when you were saying you expected that late goal that was gonna make it all happen. I kind of felt bad for the Cherries and for Watford, who was desperately mounting this kind of rearguard action to try and turn things around. But it felt like this this last-dish effort from the Cherries should have been rewarded in some ways. Terrific performance there at Goodison. Or was it just that Everton were really bad, Duncan? A bit of both, really. I think Bournemouth have, the last few weeks, have actually stepped up a bit and looked quite good again. But Everton looked... In, I think a lot of people will point to Leicester as the team that have had the worst lockdown. But... Everton have looked pretty moribund since the restart and you know they've they finished 50 points behind Liverpool they're closer to zero points than they were to Liverpool in the league um and I guess the only nice thing in the game for them apart from Kane's goal was uh was Leighton Baines coming on towards the end you know he and then he's announced his retirement um I still think of him as the only man in the England squad who recognized Morrissey in a Miami hotel in in 2014. All right um, what was the circumstances behind that? Well, England were in Florida ahead of the World Cup in Brazil, um, mm. and presumably Morrissey was staying in the same hotel. And, and, and understandably, most of the England squad didn't recognise uh, who he was, but Leighton Baines, Leighton Baines did. Is Moz not a sufficiently kind of iconic figure? 
in, in good and bad these days, of course. Well, yeah. But, um, I think Leighton Baines' reputation is, is stronger these days than Morrissey's. But Right. Bournemouth equally in this game, uh, getting their first away win of this calendar year. Yeah, that ended a run of nine in a row. And, and I think it sort of sums Bournemouth up in the Premier League. It's that their last away win was 1-0 at Chelsea in December. Um, which they pretty much used to go to Stamford Bridge and win every season. Um, and then they would then go on these terrible, terrible runs. And normally, before this season, they would you know, claw their way out of it. But um, this time, they didn't. And you, know, you do worry about them in the Championship next season. They're, you know, financially, they have spent a lot of money on a lot of players um, with big wages. And uh, yeah, there's, I think The Athletic had an article a month or so ago about how catastrophic the drop could be for Bournemouth. You also heard Eddie Howe's post-match interview and he said, you know, I'm very emotional and this is hard to take. And it was pretty easy to read into that emotion that it wasn't just a relegation, which he must have expected for quite a while and probably prepared himself for. But whether this is his last game in charge, it doesn't suit his reputation particularly well to get relegated, but it certainly doesn't suit it to hang around if Bournemouth is in in enough financial strife as we're led to believe uh, and for the moment I wonder whether there's there's championship clubs who who maybe just missed out on the playoffs who would love to try and get in his ear um, uh, because I don't think he'll get a Premier League job now you look at the Premier League clubs and there's probably only West Ham and Everton who were the ones he would go to and both look like they're going to stick with their managers for the foreseeable so if he wants to move in this mid-season break it's probably going to have to be a championship club and I guess Watford and or any of those clubs that have just missed out on promotion are the best options. See, Bain asks, uh, will Eddie stay at Bournemouth? And how many of the Watford team do you think will be poached? Watford, who have that brave attempt, as we mentioned, to come back from 3-0 down away at Arsenal. Final score there of 3-2. They were off to an absolutely awful start in that game. Yeah, I, I, I watched that game simultaneously with, with Leicester, Man United, and, and they played pretty well in the first 20 minutes, but were punished by an Arsenal team that were pretty abject the whole way through, and yet took their chances, basically. You know, the Obama overhead kick, obviously. Uh, the penalty is, is you know, is a free chance, and then Kieran Tierney scored a slightly scrappy second goal, but Watford were the better team for most of that period. Kind of lost some faith at 2-0, and then obviously came back into the game, but they will not garner much sympathy because they sacked their manager with, with two games to go. And while I don't think Nigel Pearson would have got points against Arsenal or Manchester City either, um, when you just put the caretaker in charge and he loses both games, you, all that goodwill you might have built up quite quickly dissipates. Mm. Quick mention for David Luiz, conceding his fifth penalty of the season, which is a Premier League record. Yes, he's conceded five in 33 games with Arsenal compared with three in 160 for Chelsea, Mm. um, which probably says more about the team's collective defending than David Luiz himself. All right. Watford unable to turn things around then at the Emirates and Bournemouth despite their big win at Goodison, both going down and it's a big well done to Aston Villa. We talked about the teams whose form has really fallen away after the restart, but Villa have been... The counter to that, beneficiaries of a bit of luck in their first game back from the suspension. But since then, especially with the return of John McGinn, they've really turned things around. Yeah, I'm surprised Villa have stayed up, to be honest. I think they were lacking uh, at both ends of the pitch. They haven't had a reliable goal scorer all season. Um, Obviously, the the injury to uh, 
Heaton meant they were without their first choice goalkeeper. And I think there's been some problems with both Nealand and Pepe Reina, to be honest. Um, but the one thing they've got is Jack Grealish. He scored another very good goal here, albeit not particularly good goalkeeping. But I just think at times he's he's completely carried the side. It's probably been a while since there was such an impressive performer over the course of a season from a relegated team. And I really think he's he's quite obviously been the difference between them staying up and, and being relegated a, a few weeks ago. So... Yeah, um, in the end, probably not great quality required to survive, you know, considering how, how poor Bournemouth's run was um, in particular and Watford self-imploding. But um, personally, I'm quite pleased for Villa. I like I like the club. I like Villa Park as a ground. I think it's one of the best grounds in England. So um, there's every chance I think they can push on next season. I think Michael's absolutely right about the lack of quality, but... You look through the team and the one thing they kind of do have is those leaders. You know, Grealish does it in the opposition half and Tyrone Mings has been doing it since the restart in his own half. I, I don't think he's a brilliant defender. I certainly don't think he's good enough to be in the England team, which he, he was for a period during this unfathomably long season. But he, his leadership has been there. He, he commands that defence and he drags players on and... I think that's probably been the difference. You look at some of the results from Watford and Bournemouth where they've kind of capitulated. Villa haven't really done that since the restart. Even in the games they've lost or suffered late heartache, they've kind of stuck together, which I suppose says a lot about Dean Smith's management because I think that's kind of the the abiding theme of it. Um, So, yeah, I think Mings has been kind of crucial in their form and they're a better defensive record since the restart. Yeah, I think uh, Esri Consa deserves some credit as well. Um, I think a player who... When I saw him in the first half of the season, I thought he struggled at times. But that 1-0 win over Arsenal, I thought in particular he was really good alongside Mings. So, yeah, fair play. The defence of, uh, by and large, pulled it out of the bag. And even the goal they conceded today was a, a complete freak goal. So, yeah, uh, fair play to him. Mm. That win that they had unexpectedly against Arsenal it moved them out of the bottom three. But for all of that, it was a really tense afternoon away at London Stadium with Villa fans tweeting that they expected it to go wrong any minute. And it was only really Grealish's goal. What a huge moment, which West Ham failed to recognise by going down the other end and then scoring immediately. So a, a, a very tense finale. And as you say, this strange aftermath where they, they didn't actually celebrate because they wanted to, to check other results. Michael, you say you're confident that they can push on next season. What makes you so? Well, I mean, I should qualify that. I just mean the, the sense that Villa are a big club who historically have been able to you know, finish in the top half on a consistent basis. And I, in the long term, can imagine that happening. Whereas, with great respect to, to Bournemouth and Watford, I feel like they were content with being 14th, 15th every season. And I, I just feel like next year, especially with, you know, Leeds and, and West Brom coming up, we've got a few sides who maybe just add something to the party, shall we say, because the second half of the season, I think, from the relegated clubs was... Just a little bit feeble, to be honest. So, yeah, I, I just think Villa are it's just quite nice having them in the Premier League, to be honest. Yeah, I think the, it's the thing, isn't it? If you can survive your first season, then three other teams come up who presumably you should be better set up than. Um, so it gives you much more of a... You know, the whole second season syndrome is not really true, um, if you actually look at it. So, Although if one of the few elements of quality that Villa have is Jack Grealish... Is the consensus now that he's probably played his last game for the villains? John Sands asking, where will Jack Grealish be rolling his socks down next? What's the word, Daniel? Well, I don't. I, don't, I haven't spoken to him or, or his agent, but um, 
I mean, Tottenham would seem a, a kind of logical fit. Um, so I think would Arsenal, maybe, if they want that creative player. You know, they don't necessarily buy that type of player normally, but I think he'd be a great signing for Arsenal. Um, it's been a kind of odd, uh, odd, sad end to the season. There's lots of players leaving their club after being kind of long-serving or cult heroes. You know, Leighton Baines with Everton, Grealish probably played his last. I assume Zahar's played his last. David Silva's leaving Manchester City. And obviously they've all done that with no fans to, to wave them goodbye, which in the case of Grealish and Zahar, I wonder if that makes it a bit easier. If they're not having to do that kind of wave and any badge kissing, they can just kind of slip off quietly into the, into the transfer window. You, you didn't mention Jude Bellingham as well, perhaps the most epochal of, of all the departures. <laughs> West Ham, by the way, in 19 games under I'm a winner, me, David Moyes, they recorded one more Premier League point than they managed in the 19 previous games under Manuel Pellegrini. So, hmm. Yeah, I mean, they've stayed up because, as I say, the, the quality in the bottom half seemed to drop off significantly at the midway point. At the midway point, we were saying this is quite a competitive relegation battle. Norwich are looking all right. Bournemouth weren't struggling at that point. Um, but yeah, West Ham have just remained steady over the course of the season and in the end went into the final day without anything to worry about. So, I mean, I was looking back at my pre-season predictions uh, for this season and I'm absolutely delighted to reveal that I got a grand total of zero out of the 20 sides in their correct place. Um, the two I got most wrong were obviously Sheffield United, who I had getting relegated and they came 10th. And the other one, to my surprise, was I had West Ham just about getting into the top half. And of course, they were very much struggling at the bottom uh, of the table. I think they've actually got quite a good squad, West Ham. You look at their strength and depth going forward, uh, they've got some really good players. I thought Sebastian Hilaire was going to be a really good addition as well. Started quite well, but fell away. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're kind of speaking about West Ham as if they should be pleased to, to stay up. But actually, uh, my expectations, and I think the general consensus, was that they were going to be solidly mid-table rather than fighting relegation. So another pretty negative campaign for them. Mm. Just finally on this relegation topic, Gaios, with three southern clubs going down, what's been the biggest regional imbalance ever between the number of northern and southern teams in English football's top division? Duncan, you care to handle that off the top of your head? <laughs> there was the 1987-88 season. Um, it was unusual for a few reasons. Uh, there was an odd number of clubs. Um, there was only 21 teams that season. So basically every week someone didn't have a game, which... I presume annoyed people at the time. What um, was and that, Duncan? Th- were they restructuring the size of the league? Yeah, it must have been. Um, but rather than do it in one fell sweep like they did in 1995, they were sort of tinkering around. It, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. But yeah, that season there were loads and loads of London clubs, plus Luton and Watford. Um, so it was a very uh, kind of London and South East based division. But um, yeah, it's a shame to lose some of the South Coast teams, although I did feel like the. Uh, the Premier League was resembling a UCAS form at one point with a lot of Bournemouth and Brightons and, and stuff. So, <laughs> Right. That's quite niche, Duncan, but I know what you're saying. I mean, it's worth pointing out that, um, I mean, even 10 years ago, there were, I think, more northern clubs. I haven't checked this. This is off the top of my head. But, I mean, Wigan were up there. Bolton were up there. You go back in time in the Premier League and there was... Uh, Sides like Old and Blackburn, of course, were in it relatively recently. And there was a time where there weren't any... Uh, clubs from the south of England aside from the London clubs so you didn't have Southampton there you didn't have Brighton there Um, obviously Bournemouth have have gone down this season but yeah I mean traditionally football was you know the heartlands were in the north of the country and it seems like there's been a a slight 
decline of those kind of Lancashire clubs and uh, certainly a, a boost in some of the southern clubs. I mean, you have a small side like Wickham in the, the championship, which uh, is absolutely extraordinary. Well, I mean, I think the thing with the Premier League next year is that there's two Yorkshire teams, you know, Sheffield United and Leeds. You know, for a long time, Yorkshire was a, a powerhouse of the of the top flight. And, you know, hopefully it's edging back towards I wonder the reason for, for that kind of loss of those clubs. I mean, partly it should be said a few of them had terrible owners. But also I wonder if it's a reflection of the kind of growing, over time, the growing foreign legion in the Premier League and London and the South Coast being seen by foreign players as attractive places to, to live. Um, I remember Sean Dyche saying, you know, as a kind of answer to this full squad of Brits, and he kind of said, well, it's sometimes kind of hard to, to sell coming to Burnley to a to a foreign player. Um, and I think that probably stands up to some scrutiny. I think players would probably would prefer to go to southern clubs. It's why West Ham, for example, have not finished in the top six for a long time, but have always been able to pay well and attract kind of a name of player that maybe other clubs wouldn't. You could always try just not telling them where they're going, as, as Faustino Sprilla, I think, was the, the victim of with his... He's moved to Newcastle. No, Middlesbrough used to do that as well in the mid-90s when they show players around, they take them to the hills in, the, in North Yorkshire and not actually take them near the, near the ground. Seemed to work out, right? Well, all right. Well, that wraps up the big questions from the final day of the season. But next up, let's have a curtain call as well for the other sides that have entertained us this season and Crystal Palace after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. OK, other games, listener. Let's see. Ooh, Liverpool went behind to the fastest goal ever scored on the final day. That was away at Newcastle, courtesy of Dwight Gale. But they came back to win 3-1 in that match. Elsewhere, Saints beat Sheffield United 3-1. Brighton finished in style with a surprise 2-1 win at Burnley. Man City Norwich went much as expected. 5-0 for Man City. And Spurs wrapped up six spot with a 1-1 draw at Selhurst Park. What's the verdict then? Now that the dust has settled uh, and uh, Jose has won his kind of uh, end-of-season cup thing, uh, what's the verdict on the job that he did? Well, I kind of feel like the draw against Crystal Palace was pretty much his reign in a microcosm in that they ultimately got what they needed to do to get into Europe and he should be rightly pleased with that given where they were when he took over. But there are still some serious questions about A, the aesthetic deficiencies in his football and also in the the way he's setting up the team which seems to play against from what I saw of the Palace game seems to play without a midfield for most of it and is so reliant on Harry Kane being or continuing to be a happy and be brilliant um, thankfully he seems to be both at the moment um, but it's very difficult to gauge where Tottenham are at because Mourinho's talked about having this full summer and the reality is he's not going to get that they could well start their Europa League campaign on September the 17th, five days after the start of the season. They they have to be going straight into pre-season. It's very hard to see how he changes the entire mood and style of play over that short period of time. Well, normally you would wrap up the season in May. So then you'd have June, July. Well, you'd come back in July. You'd have a month off and then you'd have a, what, six-week pre-season? Would that be yeah, fair? but... I, I th- I think it's probably the style of that pre-season in that maybe in those early weeks you would try and get across some some new tactical ideas or you would try and shape training. I don't know if that's going to be possible in a 
in what is effectively going to be a, a shorter pre-season and also a, a pre-season which they're going to be have to hit the ground running very quickly because right. they're going to play a lot of competitive football very early. Right. Well, they will have the advantage of not having been uh, off on holiday for a month, so that's good, eh? There was a slightly odd scene at the final whistle of the of Mourinho and his coaching staff sort of dancing around in a circle with their arms around each other because they're qualified for the Europa League. And I'm pretty sure at various points Mourinho has been very dismissive of the, of the Europa League. So, I mean, whether that's uh, a complete change of uh, of heart or something for the cameras, I don't know. But I think it's nice to see him with a smile on his face. No, everyone just very down on Jose when he turns up and, and moans and is snarky. And he, there he was expressing some of the joy that he feels at getting results in the beautiful game. The deep cynic in me says that that's him guaranteeing the final scene of the Amazon documentary. but <laughs> Quite possibly. All right, moving on to other games. Gav Campbell says, is Ralph Hasenhutl manager of the year? This following a 3-1 win over Sheffield United by his Saints side. Although you could make a convincing case, I imagine, too, for the beaten manager, Chris Wilder, who finishes in the top half after coming up with Sheffield United. And, Marco, you mentioned the fact that you and so many people thought that, if anything, they'd be heading for the top half of the championship. Uh, no, I, I think Chris Wilder's the manager of the year by a long way. As I've said before, I'm not sure this is anything better than uh, a mid-table championship side. And they have more than surpassed my expectations. Yeah, Hasenhutl's done very well. I mean, especially when you consider they equaled the worst ever defeat in Premier League history. Um, but I do think that was a bit of an anomaly. They were struggling a little bit um, defensively at that time, but I think there was always a sense they were going to get better. Um, and again, yeah, I'm fairly optimistic that Southampton can push on next season and and uh, yeah, be a be a more consistent force. Because again, they've got a good squad and a good manager. I think in some ways they're very well organised. So yeah, I quite like the Southampton side. Since that famous 9-0 game that they don't like everyone to keep mentioning all the time sorry Southampton they've um, taken two more points than Leicester did in that period so you know Leicester they dug too deep and they went too deep and uh, Southampton have emerged the actual moral winners from that game if not the technical winners right um, Mike I'm curious if you've got Villa pushing on and uh, Saints doing that as well who do you have kind of pushing backwards as it were which, which teams do you think are going to suffer a a fall-off and I have a quite worrying season next time around. Well, having already revealed that I got zero out of 20 predictions for this season, right, James? I'm slightly mm. reluctant to venture into uh Well, who's into poised next, to struggle, do you think? Uh, I mean... Palace. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously a bit of recency bias coming in here, but, I mean, Palace and Newcastle have really struggled in the last few games and um, I think potentially both could look to move on in terms of managers this summer. Uh, Steve Bruce I'm, I'm quite pleased for because um, I think he's a good good manager in general who generally gets job done quite well but obviously Newcastle with their takeover I think will want to push on and Hodgson who um, in some ways is quite underrated what he's achieved over the course of his career it does slightly seem like the mood at Palace there is is pretty low you look at the number of goals they've scored at second bottom and in Norwich worse than them um, and I think the third team I'd mention in this um, would be Burnley because again, I think there's a potential manager moving on there. There's been tensions between Daesh and the owners for a while. You look at the sort of 18-man um, squad he's been naming in recent weeks, and it's just, I mean, they don't have 18 players. So, yeah, they're the three sides I would be worried about. Mm. Burnley, who finished off their season with that 2-1 defeat at home to Brighton, whose manager Graham Potter 
might deserve a, a round of applause, no? Well, certainly for the manner in which he, he changed the team's style of play almost immediately. And the weird thing about Brighton's season is they suffered their big slump after he'd already kind of enacted this new style of football and the team looked to be coping really well with it. It sounds like they're going to sign Adam Lallana. Uh, it also sounds like they want to make some moves in the transfer market, but I think the budget is going to be pretty low. So I think it will be low knees and freebies, but Potter's a good coach. You know, He's used to working on that budget and I think that's where Brighton should set themselves. I don't think they should be... You know, trying to expecting to pay twenty five million pounds for or thirty million pounds for a player. Just if you trust Potter to improve the players he brings in and the ones he has, I think they'll be pretty much in the same position next season. That's raises a slightly quasi philosophical quandary for their fans, who I, I know that some of them feel it's a bit kind of I don't know stuck in suspension at the moment. Um, you know, we're aiming to finish 16th every season and it's not that exciting, but managers like Potter can change that by changing the way they play and by making it exciting. Is it just me who's slightly surprised by the Lilana move? I mean, he's 32, I think I'm right in saying. He's had really bad injury problems. He hasn't played games consistently for quite a while. They've given him a three-year contract. And for me, Brighton's strength in terms of their squad is players in that position. Grote is a really good player. So is Moy, so is Trossard. You can bash a if he's going to be around, but I wouldn't be surprised if he improves uh, next season. If I'm looking at that Brighton side and thinking where their weaknesses, I wouldn't say, oh, you really need another, you know, between the lines playmaker. Seems a slightly odd move to me. Yeah, as Daniel said, you know, Potter has done an amazing job. Really, I mean, it's very difficult to to reshape and remould uh, a team towards the bottom end of the table, um, and it's quite apt that a Potter has been able to do it. I guess. Well, that's nice. Uh, as was Eve Basuma's scoring strike for Brighton. Nick Pope, though, not keeping a clean sheet and thus missing out on the Golden Gloves to Man City's Edison, who did keep his uh, net clean, as it were, whatever you call it, uh, in Man City's 5 0 win over Norwich. Ooh, Kevin De Bruyne with two goals in this one and another assist. So he is up to 20, which equals Thierry Henry's record for a single Premier League season. Lots of chatter about Kevin De Bruyne this week after John Henderson won the Sports Riders Player of the Year. I mean, it's quite nice or maybe quite pointed the way De Bruyne didn't really celebrate much at all in this game. He was like lashing balls in, you know, playing amazing passes and it was almost like, you know, what what else can I do? I'm the best player in the league and I'm still not recognised as such. Um, you know, that 20 assists by Henri in 0203. A lot of players have tried to beat that. Uh, Fabregas came close a couple of times. Lampard once. Uh, Meza Ozil looked nailed on one season before falling away. You know, it is a, across Europe's all of Europe's leagues, reaching 20 assists is a very, very impressive and, and hard thing to do. So, you know, I guess De Bruyne will prefer that than, you know, just some award or other. But it does feel like he was let down a bit. Talking of... 20. Raheem Sterling reached 20 league goals, which has kind of gone under the radar and understandably so, I suppose, given that he plays in a team that creates a lot of chances. But it's a remarkable effort for a player who I'm still not wholly convinced how he even strikes the ball when he shoots. And he's also not been able to, you know, he scored 18 in 17, 18 and 17 last season. But that was kind of in that Man City cheat move where they got him in four or five yards from goal to finish chances. He's, because of Sané not playing, he's not really done that as much this season. And yet, he's obviously got his highest goal-scoring season, 30 in all competitions, which is 
remarkable for a player who, as I say, doesn't feel in any way like a natural goal scorer. Yeah, the interesting thing about that is he's got 20 goals and only one assist, which is the kind of stats you expect of a poacher. And I guess in some ways that's what he's become. You know, so many tap-ins at the far post rather than, you know, creating chances for other players, which in fairness he has done in the past couple of seasons. past couple of seasons he's got 11 and 10 assists respectively. But uh, yeah, maybe a slight change of role, becoming almost a, more of a penalty box player now. We should also congratulate City for scoring over 100 goals again. You know, they're now the team that's done it more in the top flight than any other team in history. You know, a lot of fans will point out that, you know, City don't have history, but they, you know, they did it in the 30s and the 50s and then obviously three times in, in recent memory. Um, and again, that, that used to be a very hard thing to do and they've kind of normalised it. 102 Premier League goals uh, this season, which means they've overtaken Bayern Munich for the most goals in Europe's top five leagues this campaign. Sterling's also one goal away from 100 for Manchester City, which is, again, seems extraordinary to me, given that he was bought in only in 2015 from Liverpool as this kind of slight winger um, and received a lot of criticism for doing so. To have been converted by Guardiola is one thing, but to take that on board and can basically completely change his game after a massive money move take some guts given that everything was going around around him off the field with with you know tabloid media stuff at the time kind of fair play to him for that um if they are going to win the champions league it it sounds like he's going to have to be the the leading goal scorer again mm-hmm. he's the Dries mertens of the premier league marvelous this game also seeing the curtain come down on vastly underrated spanish midfielder <coughs> david silva in his time at man city a uh, decade he's been there and he's won things. So stop saying he hasn't. Michael, how much are you going to miss him? Yeah, I guess I will miss him, although 10 years is a decent stint. Um, I think he's been the most important player in transforming Manchester City from a kind of hopeful title challenger to the side who, um, I guess even now, still seem the the most dominant when you look at their achievements over the last four or five years. Um, yeah, I think one of the kind of most skillful and most selfless players in, in Premier League history. I think he's also the one example of a player that Guardiola has improved even when he, he inherited him at quite a, an old age in football terms. I mean, I used to think of David Silva as a brilliant creator, but someone who didn't really score enough goals. That hasn't been the case in recent years. He's he's added something more to his game. He goes in behind more often. Um, he's obviously still a, one of the best players in the Premier League at playing through balls. And uh, yeah, He's, he's just been a, a great player to watch, I think. Well, we'll still get the opportunity probably in at least one Champions League match, the second leg of their last 16 clash with Real Madrid. And who knows, perhaps after that in Portugal as well this August. That's it, though, for the Premier League season. There'll be another one along shortly on the 12th of September. And, of course, in the course of this week, we'll be discovering uh, which other team will be joining West Brom and Leeds coming up in the from the Championship for that. Uh, one game taking place Sunday night, and we'll have Nick Miller along very shortly to tell us how that one went down. Uh, first of all, though, here's Lee Price with Ben Green. Thank you very much, Jimbo. Hello, listeners. Hello, Lee Price from Paddy Power for one of the final times this season. Boo-hoo. Lee who is going to be the champion in the very excellently named 2020-2021 season? I'm glad you asked, Ben, because it's the end of the season. It's got a last day of term feel this. So why not tell you in haiku form? Here we go. <clears throat> Liverpool were great, but Man City are quite rich. Haiku, bad idea. 
Yeah, sorry about that. But long story short, Man City are rods on to win the league next season, despite, well, this season. Liverpool, the champions, 15-8 to to retain their crown. Very much a two-horse race, according to the numbers. It's 8-1 to for United to win the league, 14-1 to for Chelsea, 50-1 to for Arsenal, 90-1 to for Tottenham. Now, that really would be poetry. We haven't mentioned Leeds, of course, who will be coming back to the Premier League after, etc. and so on. Um, can they finish in the top half next season? <laughs> Interesting. Has anyone mentioned Edison Cavani yet? Thought as much. We're rating Leeds' chances quite highly next season. They're going to go for it, clearly. And that's probably why it's priced just 5-4 to four they finish in the top half. That really would be some return to the top flight, but we're kind of backing them. Finally, Lee, West Brom, they're also up. We don't know who will be joining them from the championship playoffs. But will the Baggies do what they usually do and go straight back down? Hmm, a little tighter in the pricing here. But again, we like West Brom's chances. They're odds on to survive next season. 8 to 11, they stay up. As for relegation, we're not exactly making it comfortable for them. We go even as they go down. So they'll definitely be in the mix in terms of relegation betting. But odds on they survive, as I say. That's got to be good news, Baggies. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, this week, listener, woof, got a special Euro show for you up later on this Monday, uh, talking about Juve and titles and then France, Paris Saint-Germain's Cup win over Saint-Étienne and that brawl and the tackle on Mbappe and is he going to be fit for the Champions League we'll probably throw in some kind of reference to Chinese football action and Marin Fellaini's extraordinary eight minute headed hat trick for Shandong Luneng away at Dalian Ifang Mm, all headers you know I mean you'd expect that I think probably in his case Uh, but right now uh, let's talk about Sunday evening in the championship playoff semi-finals Nick Miller are you there I'm here James hello hey There he is, fellas. Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi. How are you doing? All right. I, I'm well. You've been all over Swansea Brentford for mm, us. Yes, I have. Mm. Yes. What, what, what's been going on? Well, uh, Swansea won 1 0. Uh, lots of um, sort of hand wringing about a, uh, a red card to Brentford's Rico Henry. Lots of sort of games gone, can't even tackle anymore uh, stuff. It was a kind of robust challenge where he seemed to get the ball and uh, lots of people saying it wasn't even a foul and he was duly given the red card. So uh, 1-0 in the first leg to Swansea. Right. Does this in any way illustrate people's thoughts on momentum coming into playoffs? Brentford, who'd looked like a, a lock maybe to be in the automatic promotion spots, but blew it at the death against a Swansea side who really snuck in against all expectations and at the cost of another team whose name escapes me right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can't really remember. I think they just sort of coasted in. They were safe weeks ago. I can't really remember any sort of late drama or anything like that. It should have been Forrest, Nick. You should have been here telling us all about Forrest. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I did appreciate the uh, assignment to watch this game. The uh, you know the game that we had nothing been playing else to in. do. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think it really, that there is anything um, to be sort of read into re momentum. Uh, Brentford were probably the better team for about an hour. Um, they could have scored a couple of goals, um, and then when the uh, kind of sending off happened, it sort of it, it obviously turn the game um, and I, I think I still fancy them to to go through I think they're the top scorers in the division and I think they'll um, I think they'll win the second leg at home on Wednesday quite handily so I think they will still 
go through. In fact, given the circumstances, I don't think they'll be sort of crying themselves to sleep about the result in the in the first leg. I think they're still well placed. Okay, Cardiff meanwhile will be taking on Fulham in the other semi-final first leg on Monday night. Some really tantalising possibilities for either a South Wales derby or a West London derby uh, when the final rolls around, which is a week on Tuesday. Yes, it will. Yes, I suspect everyone um, in the kind of Wembley area is pretty pleased that there won't be any fans there if it's um, Cardiff v Swansea. The sort of the ult- it'll be the ultimate bubble game um, in that you know fans won't be allowed anywhere near it. But um, yeah, I think I think Fulham probably that they've been a bit dis- disappointing for most of the season, but have been something something seems to have sort of sparked in the last couple of weeks. They seem to have been playing a little bit better, so I, I think they will beat. Cardiff, so I reckon it will be uh, following against Brentford in the final. Right. Okay. Sorry, Daniel, did you want to leap in there or are you all right? No, I'm not talking about the championship. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I like the championship. Can I just put that on record? <laughs> well, the Solely Football League show will be talking about uh, the playoffs uh, when it returns at the end of this week, once, uh, you know, those results are in. I'm sure they'll also be discussing Birmingham City, uh, which we referenced before. But in case you missed this story, remarkable. Jude Bellingham, 17 years of age, who's just decided to snub Man United and others and instead join Borussia Dortmund, scored, I think, four goals this season, but has featured heavily for uh, the Blues. Can you in, in any way explain their decision to retire his jersey number 22? Uh, my championship knowledge isn't too great, but I think I'm right in saying that he signed a contract with Birmingham when he didn't have to, um, which meant that they received more money for him than they would have done from Dortmund. And I think that was seen as quite a nice gesture. So they did a maybe slightly OTT nice gesture in celebration of that. I think it's one of those things that only has to annoy you or make you laugh at it if you choose to. Like it can just be absolutely nothing, which is basically what it is. A club that you will probably never particularly care about unless you support them, retiring a squad number that they probably aren't going to... They might fill again, but you know, twenty. it's not like it's a number seven or a number nine shirt. It's number 22, which, as we all know, is synonymous with Brian Roy and Brian Roy only. So I don't think... I just I don't really see the problem with it. I, I suspect what they're hoping is that in 15 years he comes back, having had a brilliant career, and takes his shirt again and plays for them. That'd be quite nice. I don't. Right. I, it's just one of those things. I think. I mean, this is me. I, I'm aware of the irony meter going off here, but it seems like one of those things that annoys people on social media, but that most people don't really care about. My issue with it is that I think it's part of this perception of just things not being given the value that they deserve anymore. Uh, And in this case, it's shirts being retired. Sure, I'm happy for him and I'm happy for them if they want to do it. But doesn't doing this off the back of a season or so, doesn't that totally devalue the whole notion of retiring someone's jersey? For all the greats who have had their jerseys retired for incredible exploits and illustrious careers. If you, if you just start handing these yeah. things out, it cheapens the gesture. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, you, do, you retire the shirt number because a player has, has done something so amazing over his career in that shirt number that no one can replicate it. Um, but at the same time, it's not as bad as Reading giving number 13 to the fans. So got to keep these things in perspective. Fair enough. All right, then. Now, uh, in other playoff news, of course... Uh, Harrogate Town are off to Wembley, Daniel, sparking much controversy about whether if they made it up to the Football League, they would become the smallest kind of footballing entity ever to reach 
that status? Uh, is it them? Is it Glossop North End? I'm not sure, but I do know that you've written a really nice piece on uh, Harrogate Town, which is a lovely place to visit, in the I newspaper. Isn't that right, Daniel? Yeah, I, I interviewed the the manager last week, who's a, a lovely man, and um, yeah, I, I should have. I originally wrote in the article uh, in the last hundred years and subbed it out for reasons of word count, and should probably have stuck with that because I think Glossop North End are in the most. Um, it's one fan base you don't want to upset. Yeah, the ultras. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's a it's a really nice it is a really nice story. It's basically a Leeds United town. Um, they get about a thousand, I think one thousand two hundred their average attendance this season, which is something like nineteenth in the conference. Uh, and they are going to Wembley for the first time. And I think it's a tall order to beat Notts County at Wembley. But if they do it, then it's a pretty extraordinary achievement, really. Johnny Blaine pointing out that Notts County have had four thousand nine hundred eighty six football league matches in their history. Harrogate. I've had none. It's also, so I will also say Simon Weaver, the manager, is a really interesting story in himself in that he's only 42 and he's been manager of Harrogate for more than a quarter of his life. It's his first wow. job in, in football and he's been there for nearly 12 years, which by far and away makes him the longest serving manager in, in English football, which is um, yeah a rare achievement. Brilliant. All right, well, that's the end of the Premier League campaign, but by no means the end of our season. We're going to be, uh, as I say, back on uh, Monday evening with the Euros show and there's a Thursday show looking forward to the FA Cup. All that stuff. And of course, there's the delights of the Europa League and Champions League around the corner as well. For now, though, many thanks to Duncan and Daniel and Michael for all their insight and entertainment and illumination throughout this Premier League campaign. And thanks to Nick Miller for joining us as well. Listener, thanks for putting up with us uh, throughout the last 11 months of Premier League action. We'll speak to you soon. And now from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.